All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the State Hornet Spotlight. I'm here joined with Gary, and today we have a special guest, Sac State alum and NBA insider for the athletics, Sam Amick. How you doing today? Doing great, guys. Thanks for having me. Always excited to be with the Hornets, the old Hornet. Appreciate it. Yeah, of course. And obviously, we want to talk to you about the last couple months in your life. You've been inside the NBA bubble. First off, I just want to ask you how long you were in the bubble and also kind of kind of describe what that experience was like when you were able to arrive in that type of environment. So it was crazy. Uh, I mean, I, I probably would say the most unique experience that I've had in my, and this is going to make me feel old, but like my 20 years doing this job, the bubble was unlike anything that I've ever seen. And the entire length of stay, uh, which it's funny because the people who were in there, the joke everybody would make was like, you can't count, like don't count the days because it's going to make it a little tougher mentally. You know what I mean? Like there were high, there were fun times, there were good times, but it was kind of emotionally taxing. And so if you counted, it made it a little bit tougher. Uh, but 53 days was the final. And the way that we did it for the athletic is my colleague, Joe Barden, who also covers the NBA as a national writer, went from the, the first half. So Joe went mid-July to, to when I came through, which was August 29th. Now, the whole process was August 20th, the fly to Orlando, spent two days in a hotel outside of the bubble that was controlled by the NBA, where you get in there, you get your first test, and essentially you wait uh, for the result of that test before they let you into quarantine inside the bubble. So on August 22nd, I go into the Coronado Resorts inside the bubble. It's a kind of south, I guess, southwest corner of the property called the Casitas, where you quarantine for seven days inside a pretty basic hotel room. And then after that seven-day quarantine, then you're out, then you're in the bubble, then you're getting to work. So that was August 29th. But yeah, I mean... Really neat experience, but, but, you know, like I said, highs, lows, challenging, fun, all of the above, but, you know, pretty, pretty long stretch. Yes, and that sounds, that sounds hectic, especially those first couple of days of quarantine. I wouldn't even know what to do those first couple of nights. What, what were right. the things you did those, like, first day, just <laughs> in your room all day, reading books, reading articles? What were you doing? FaceTime it's funny you office? say that. Right. Yeah, FaceTiming. So my wife and I have got two young sons, and so you're trying to stay connected my son, Ryder's 14. My son, Landon's 11. So the FaceTiming is part of it, but, you know, your family's busy back home. Like, they were in school, even though it's virtual. The truth is, for the first four or five days of quarantine, I was doing fine because the playoffs were happening. And, and as you guys know, uh, you know, you had games all day long. They were jamming all these games in. And so, yeah, you're stuck in the hotel room, but I was busy. I could watch games. I would jump on Zoom calls to do media stuff. And and say, okay, do I, you know, what do I want to write about? One of the benefits of the way media worked during COVID is that somebody like me, who normally would have to fly all over the country to, to go get access to certain players, certain coaches, now all of a sudden there were Zoom calls for every team almost every day. You could just kind of hit a couple buttons, jump on and say, hey, Doc Rivers, how do you feel about, you know, this matchup against the Rockets tonight? And so I was busy. Now, what happened in quarantine, which was pretty wild, was that, as you guys know, August 26th, the, the players, uh, you know, were essentially traumatized and, and upset 
and frustrated for with very good reason over the shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And it was the latest and and just kind of another excessive police violence situation. You guys know the story. So the players decide not to play. The Orlando Magic uh, are going to play the Milwaukee Bucks. And in the Bucks locker room, George Hill was kind of the, the one guy who led the way and said, we're not playing. And that brings everything to a halt. Now, for me, you know, I'm a guy who's covered the NBA since 2004. And this is history in the making. And as a reporter, I wanted nothing more than to be able to go do my job, go chronicle the history, but I couldn't leave my room. That was hard not to be a part of in person. And then, and this is, these are memories I'm never going to forget. I had two neighbors in my quarantine that, and again, this, this was so bizarre and so surreal. My two neighbors were front office executives. One of them is the guy who runs the Denver Nuggets, uh, Tim Conley. He was two doors to my right. To my right was a guy you guys probably know very well, my colleague who does a great job, uh, Shams Sharania at The Athletic. So Shams was to my right. Tim Conley, the Nuggets GM, was two doors down. And to my left was a guy named Mike Zarin, who's the Boston Celtics uh, assistant general manager. Now, we're all kind of going through this together. And at the back end of quarantine, and again, I can share this because I've already gotten in trouble and it's all behind me now. We were going so crazy. So we decide, Shams didn't take part. To his credit, Shams followed all the rules. So we decided to sit in our doorways and, you know, you weren't supposed to leave the room, but we sit in our doorways and have a glass of wine from like 30 feet apart. And basically like all three of us, and I'm talking myself, the guy from the Celtics, guy from the Nuggets, all three of us are like, man, I know we're not supposed to leave, but this is crazy. We got to talk. Like, what are you hearing? What are you hearing? What's going on? And again, as a reporter, you're kind of going, all right, this probably isn't a great idea, but I'm also a reporter. And the chance to sit there and talk shop with some front office guys in the middle of this environment was pretty tough to pass. So, you know, we did that. We were safe about it. Nobody, like, again, if you, I even have a picture of this that I'm probably going to frame one day where you, like, we're 30 feet apart from one another. Nobody's interacting, but, uh, but we did end up getting cracked on by security. I even ended up having to spend an extra day in quarantine, which was not very much fun. Yeah. So like quarantine was wild. And then once you get out and once you start learning the ways of the bubble and the ways of the world, it actually, it was okay. You know what I mean? You, it's weird how all the stuff that, that gave you culture shock in the beginning, like the daily testing and where do I go get food? And where can I go for a, a bike ride? And where can I not go for a bike ride? Because if you if you made the mistake of, you know, you can rent these bicycles. If you made the mistake of taking a wrong turn and accidentally going out of the bubble, then they would give you seven more days of quarantine. So, like in that respect, you know, not not a million years would I ever equate this to to jail. But I told someone I'm like it's a it's like being on house arrest. In a, in a really nice property, you know, like, <laughs> but, you know, I, I kind of found my way and, and ultimately ended up enjoying it. The next question I had for you, Sam, was how did uh, you adjust being a journalist in the bubble? Like you kind of mentioned a little bit, how you had to treat, treat, maybe do things a little differently. What was the good part? What was the bad part? How did you connect with other journalists? I know I've seen Rachel Nichols talk about like on her show, The Jump, about how like all your media members also got a chance to reconvene and connect more than usual so speak on that a little bit and speak on how like your journalism maybe has changed during that time 
Yeah, I mean, the stuff that was positive is that, and I'm just going to be honest about it, is that in normal times, non-COVID times, if you go to a Lakers game at Staples Center, you know, there might be 80 media members that you are sharing space with. Go in the locker room if you want to talk to this guy. There's 10 people in your way. Even if you have a relationship with the guy, it's still kind of hard to connect with that human being because there's so many other people around. So the nice part was the crowd media wise was so small. And the truth is, so when I was there, there were 18 reporters that were not, or who were not affiliated with ESPN or Turner. So, so non league partner media members, in addition to the Rachel Nichols of the world and people like that. And it was honestly, that part was a lot of fun because you're talking about some of my best friends in the business, people who I'm really tight with. You know, Jeff Zilgit is a guy that I worked with at USA Today for six years, one of my best friends on the planet. Jeff was in there, um, you know, on the ESPN side. Mark Spears and I have been good friends for a long time. Mark was in there, Rachel and I, um, you know, all the way down the line. And Dan Woodkey from the LA Times, I can go all the way down the list. Jared Greenberg from NBA TV is a guy that, that you know, we were hanging out with every night. So. You had this camaraderie, but you also had, for being real, like everybody's in really close quarters and you see each other every single day. And I've told people since I got home that even me, I, I learned a few things about myself, you know, where it's the kind of stuff that, I mean, I'm half kidding, but like when you're married, you know, like my wife knows the side of me that the rest of the world might not know because we do this every day, you know, well, in the bubble, you felt that way with everybody, you know, like, and everybody's like, it's it's the the parts about certain people that you love, they might get accentuated, and the parts about people that might get under your skin, those get accentuated too, you know. And in terms of the job, again, it's that connection with the people you cover that was easier to have. LeBron James is talking in an NBA Finals press conference, and there are only 12 reporters in the room because it was so much more intimate. It was more like a conversation. It wasn't like the chaotic press conference that you're used to seeing in normal times and and that part I love was really thankful that I was I mean you were part of history I would be completely lying to you if I didn't admit that like yeah it's a I mean it, it feels like a thing they it for sure goes on the resume like I was one of the reporters in the bubble you take pride in that because it was a very small group and it was a professional group and some really really good work came out of the bubble I guess to give you one other little detail um, it was interesting because one-on-one -on -one interviews a lot of times are obviously, you know, we're all kind of seeking them. And in normal time, you could, like, if you saw, you know, a guy, Jamal Murray, walking down the hallway, you could just say, hey, Jamal, do you have a quick second? I, I had a few more questions I was hoping to bounce off of you. And you could do that. And maybe if he's okay with it, now you've got a, an exclusive interview that you can write about and kind of promote. Well, in the bubble, they did have a rule where they just didn't want, because we were around the players so much and they had to live here and we had to live here, they didn't want us doing that type of a thing. So they would ask you to, to get that stuff approved by the team. It, you know, they would still grant one-on-one -on -one interviews whenever they could, but you had to get permission from the team. So that little tweak, you know, kind of bothered some people and, and at times did make it harder to do what we do. But for the most part, you know, we, we got to work, which is a lot more than a lot of my colleagues could say the last couple of months.
as you uh, got out of quarantine and as the season went on, did the NBA show any anything that where they were loosening, um, you know, loosening rules? Maybe uh, more things were able, like starting to get open to you guys as far as activities and things like that. I would say that they that everybody kind of let their guard down a little bit later in the process. Like you know, you might sit there talking to an athlete from two feet away instead of six feet away and nobody would yell at you. Once you looked around and it's like, okay, everybody around me has done at least 30 negative tests in a row. You kind of just get to the point where it's like, all right, everybody's clear. Now that wasn't the case. Like there were 6,500 Disney workers who were coming and going from this property. And I know for a fact, you know, there were quite a few positive cases within those workers that could have been a problem. Now they weren't. But so in, in that respect, you had the, the rules kind of loosening. Um, then you had, you know, you almost, especially when Adam Silver showed up late in the process, things got a little bit tighter. Uh, it was almost like any job, right? Like if you work at a grocery store and the manager's, you know, you know, showing up, everybody kind of fixes their tie. And, and did, like that part was hilarious. Like now on the flip side, in terms of like not the work, but the lifestyle stuff that, one of the, the kind of disappointments was that as teams left the bubble, the, the size of the bubble got a little bit smaller. Like, for example, when the Rockets lost their series to the Lakers, that closed down uh, one of the major hotels because the Rockets at that time were the only team left in that hotel, if that makes sense. So now they were going to open that hotel up to the public. Now, those of us in the media – we're disappointed by that because that hotel is the place where we would go on these awesome fishing trips. There was a, a, a like a boat fishing trip and it was like the most, some of the most fun I've ever had fishing. And I like to fish where you go out and in normal times, this costs you like $300 a person. Uh, you go out on the boat with a guide. They got this massive lake. There's fish just absolutely, you know, flooding the river. And I mean, I, I can sit here and show you guys a picture right now. I got bass that are this big, you know, five pound, six pound bass. And it was a lot of fun. And then once like the Rockets left and other teams left, those types of kind of recreational options were no longer available, which is, you know, a perfect segue. Like the thing that honestly kind of kept everybody sane, I don't know if you guys saw any of this on my social media, but we all started playing the game of pickleball like crazy. And it was a blast. So like I'd never played in my whole life. If people haven't heard of it, it's growing really quickly. It's like a mix between ping pong and tennis. And uh, the backstory is pretty great. So Scott Foster is a, a longtime NBA official and a guy who plays pickleball in his personal life, like a crazy person. Like if you, Put it this way, because we're telling you know you guys are Sacramento folks too. When he asked me like, "Hey Sam, you know where do you live?" and I said near Sacramento, he sat there and rattled off the names of like 15 parks in Sacramento where he plays pickleball. So like whenever he refs the Kings games, he will he'll even try to come in like a day early to get some more pickleball games in. And this is what this guy does all over the country. So in the bubble, he decided to bring his own pickleball net and create a pickleball court right in the middle of our hotel property. There was like a, a plaza that had a bunch of rooms. 
So he creates this court that became like this communal, you know, kind of feature that everybody enjoyed. The referees would play with the reporters and they would play with like even the former players that were in the media, like Richard Jefferson and Steve Smith would come out there and play quite a bit. I actually convinced Adam Silver to come out and say hello one day. And I, I had sent Adam a note and was like, hey, you should come by the pickleball court. He didn't play, but he came by for like a half an hour and, and just hung out. And he was on a bike, you know what I mean? Like normally we see Adam in a suit. This was Adam in a t-shirt and a bicycle. And uh, a couple of days later, we're playing and I'm sitting on the bench waiting for, for my turn in the game. And Richard Jefferson was out there a lot. And so Richard, because he was there, uh, he looks up and one of his buddies comes to say hello to him and LeBron is is hanging out at the pickleball court. So pickleball was like, was a huge highlight. Um, even today, I actually put a picture on my social media about how I created a pickleball court in front of my house. Like, so I've decided to bring this home with me now. I got my sons uh, out here playing and, and mm -hmm. I'm trying to grow the game. So it's like pick up who, you know, just go see if anybody's playing and uh, and kind of go from there. Hey, Sam, you already told us so many cool stories. My next question is, what is your coolest story you want to share about the bubble and maybe about the worst part of the bubble? I mean, the um, stories are cool. <laughs> story. Right? Try to give me a second. Well, I mean, no, the LeBron ones, I just, for sure. The LeBron ones, I just, I, I, yeah. I, thought, I thought very highly of the way he handled his media. I texted his, his publicist, your guy has become so good at being thoughtful with the media, which is that's what we want. Like just no cliches, you know, and, and not to throw a guy under the bus, but I guess I will anyway. But like, you know, Jason Tatum's a great player. He's also a really young dude who was driving me nuts because he would do his media and he would just stare at his phone the whole time. And he wouldn't look up and you just, he made you feel like you were bothering him. You know what I mean? Whereas LeBron is sitting there listening to your question and if he doesn't like your question, he'll tell you why he doesn't like it. And if he thinks it's a thoughtful question, he'll give you a thoughtful answer. In terms of memories, I mean, I had a couple nights where my job was, in terms of coverage, at The Athletic, we have so many good basketball writers that we had stories getting pumped out every single day that honestly had the kind of analysis that, that I could have done, but it wouldn't have separated my coverage from from anybody else's in terms of me being inside the bubble. So my strategy was to kind of be the eyes and ears for the reader from inside the bubble. Every little detail that I saw that I thought might be interesting to the reader that they couldn't see on television, I wanted to write about that. So I had two nights where it was a lot of fun to do this job where the Lakers were celebrating the Western Conference Finals victory over Denver. And I would go there was that lake in the middle of the property um, to give, I guess, paint the picture for everybody is you got hotels all around the lake and that's basically what the bubble is. And in the middle, there's a lake and there's a restaurant in the middle of the lake called the three bridges restaurant. And you, you know, like the name says, you got three bridges coming from three different areas to the restaurant. Well, we weren't allowed to go to this restaurant. It was a players only team only restaurant. And that part would, that kind of drove, drove us crazy because, we were so restricted, but, but I get it. Like the players needed their space. So we would sit by the lake and pull our computers out and write stories in this little area that was basically 
it was called the Laguna Bar. Um, so it was like an outdoor bar. And we would get out there and somebody bring a bottle of wine, you know, and you have a glass of wine and you start writing your story. And the color from, so the night that they win the, the Western Conference, the Lakers start rolling into the Three Bridges restaurant at like one o'clock in the morning. Well, this is where like journalistically, you know, you got to make a few decisions because I want to tell the reader as much as possible about what's happening inside the bubble, but you also want to be responsible. I'm not here to like, you know, I'm not here to sit here and write all the details that, that might make somebody look bad because this is not, this is a little bit of their private space. You know what I mean? Like it's a, it's a gray area in terms of that discussion. So my intent was just to, to be able to tell people that after the game, they went to the three bridges, but I would include details like, you know, around 1 a.m., LeBron and AD, you know, came over the bridge together. And, and once they entered the restaurant, uh, the whole place went crazy, you know, cheering. And I even, I remember I wrote like what song was playing and, and you know, I mean, listen, I didn't, I didn't know the song. I, I used good old Siri and I sat there saying, all right, what's the song? And, and it could hear the song from over the water and you include that in the story. And so that's the kind of coverage I was trying to do. But those nights were fun because that night, I mean, I was out there till four in the morning. We would write really late. You know, and I don't really have deadlines at my place. So we would be out there really late. You know, next thing you know, and this is a different night, a bunch of us writers are sitting in that same spot. And a lot of times the players and the coaches would leave the three bridges and then they would see us. And you could tell they were always confused. Like, why do these guys hang out over here? Cause they didn't know that we weren't allowed to in the restaurant. So they would roll over. And like one night, Frank Vogel sat down had a couple beers with us, uh, you know, and, and you get a chance to connect with a guy like Frank Vogel on a different level. Um, so, I mean, those memories are, are cool. The same type of thing happened when the Lakers won the title. Um, it was an earlier tip off, but I had the same assignment. Like, let me get back to my spot. Let me write about what the celebration looks like. When the Lakers win the title, I'm sitting out in that spot with Dave McMenamin from ESPN, who's a guy I've known for a very long time. And Dave and I, the night of the championship, were the only ones that were there for most of that time. And as we're doing our thing, uh, a guy from the Lakers rolls by, and I don't want to put his name out there, but who we're pretty friendly with, not a player, not a coach. And, uh, and, he, and he sees us, and he knows we're just writing our, our championship Lakers stories. And he goes, guys, you, uh, you guys enjoy cigars at all? And normally it's like, you know, I'm not normally going to be taking cigars from people, but you're kind of going, man, what is this life? Like, I'm in this bubble writing about this basketball team. Like, I don't care. Give me a cigar, sure. And so, you know, Dave and I sit there just smoking on stogies and, and writing these stories. And you do like, you, you feel like an old-timey sports writer. And so those, those are definitely going to be cool memories. I want to talk about kind of the gameplay a little bit, kind of how the games went. Do you think, or how do you think no fans in the stadiums kind of affected the gameplay as far as, you know, the players in the bubble and the competition? I think honestly, all in all, I give a lot of credit to the players because I thought the level of competition was, was really high. Now it got really high in the playoffs. It got really high when teams were fighting to get into the playoffs, you know, Damian Lillard toll run with the Blazers trying to get in, you know, that was exciting stuff, but you did have a, your fair share of, of dog games. You know what I mean? Like 
where I, we'll never know, but I, I think you could tell that certain players, certain teams, you know, probably didn't want to be there anymore. Probably just weren't feeling it, you know. And that's the thing going in that a lot of people were worried about is, was it going to be a bad look for the brand if you just had, you know, terrible basketball? But all in all, these guys found a way to compete. You know, the fact that they were able to make it feel as intense as it did and, and, and have the level of competition be what it was, I think they deserve credit for that. And the other part, you talk about the highs and lows of the bubble. One of the other highs that, that I'll probably never experience again is that we got to sit so close in the media. And because you had no fans, you all of a sudden, you got to hear the trash talk. You got to hear the stuff on the bench. I mean, watching Dwight Howard try to mess with Nikola Jokic was incredible. In fact, I, you know, this is again, kind of old time sports writer stuff, but like in one of my columns, I I just made a joke about how I thought, you know, Dwight, who's called himself Superman for a long time, should call himself Batman because he's going after the Joker. And the next game, I hear Dwight yelling at Jokic during the game going, Joker, Batman's coming, Batman's coming. And I'm going, yeah, all right, Dwight, read my column. All right, Dwight, I hear you, you know. But the next question I had was, I think one of the biggest questions I think everyone has is of the actual championship. Do you feel – this championship had an asterisk or like a star? I know that's a general question. I know in terms of asterisk, people have been saying the no fans and no travel. I know we heard Shaq say that in the beginning of the bubble, but then I also heard the other side that it should be a star because, like you said, you're getting everyone's best effort, the best game plans. I think coaching was top-notch the whole time. And, yeah, so what do you think of that in, that t- in terms of NBA history? Does this deserve an asterisk or a star? I think definitely a star, and I and not to sound arrogant about it, I I think anybody who was in the bubble has an opinion that should matter more than people who weren't in the bubble, because from a human standpoint, we all got a taste of what it was to be there, and what I mean is I had days where I didn't feel like doing my job. You know what I mean? Like I just wanted a day off, and I and I like my job. I love my job, but you got tired of the rules. You got tired of the restrictions. You got tired of the lack of control. And that was no different than the players. Like, yeah, they might've had a bigger hotel room than me. They had more space than me, but the people who got mad at the players for acting as if this was challenging, they just don't get it. Nobody's trying to play their violin and say, you know, that this is the worst thing that's ever happened to somebody. But you know, we're all human. It doesn't matter how much is in these guys' bank accounts. Their lifestyles were upended. Their routines were upended. They were pulled away from loved ones, and they still went out and did their job. And the Lakers, to me, were the most focused, determined, locked-in group in the bubble, and that's why I think they should get a star. LeBron handled it from beginning to end with aplomb. And honestly, like the mental health discussion – that surrounded the bubble is a good one. And it's, but it's tough because there's a gray area where you don't want to sit here and like say, Hey, we're, we're sympathetic to mental health and we're trying to focus on that as an important issue. But Oh, by the way, like what, what's the equation? Like, are we saying the Lakers just kept their mentals in check better than the Clippers? Like that's not, that's too simplistic. You know what I mean? That's not fair. But so I don't really even know that I want to go down that road, but the reality is 
you know, a guy like Paul George talked openly about how he was struggling. A guy like Kawhi Leonard didn't play that well. I mean, Kawhi didn't score in the fourth quarter of their elimination game. And, you know, chemistry on these teams, it was revealed. And this is stuff that, again, I can relate to. I got media members who I'm friends with who, uh, you know, you come out of it where your chemistry with this media member either gets revealed in a good way or a bad way. And I know that sounds like a weird parallel to make, but like, it's true. Like you just can't run from any of this stuff. Cause like if LeBron, let's say LeBron in the regular season was telling the whole world, Oh, I love AD, Danny Green's great, Rondo. We love Doe, all these things. And he's just completely full of it. And privately he can't stand these guys. Well, that would have come out in the bubble. It would have come out as far as the way that you move and the way you compete. Cause you got to be brothers on a team and you got to get the job done. So I think it's with the star because it was the, the, the kind of challenge that nobody's ever been asked to do really in pro sports. Jamal Murray, one of my favorite interviews of the whole bubble. We had a, a one-on-one one time. And, and I remember he told me that in the bubble, he, he would take a five hour nap before every game. And he said that it, before, in, in, in normal time, he would take a two hour nap. And I always remember that story because it just showed me that like, here's a guy that knows that the bubble is challenging. And one of the ways that I can simplify my routine is to take something like a nap. And and now I'm going to do the extreme version of it because those three hours that he chose to sleep, you know, taking it from two hours to five hours, he might've spent those three hours being sick and tired of being in the bubble. He might've spent those three hours feeling sorry for himself. Instead, he basically treated himself like Pac-Man that he was just juicing up all the energy and, and trying to get ready for the game that night and simplifying his process because he knew what he needed to do in order to compete at the level he wanted to. I want to ask you about, um, you know, kind of the transition from the bubble to back to the real world. I saw on Twitter, you said something about, you know, <laughs> missing the bubble. Can you talk a little bit about kind of being in the bubble as opposed to kind of what California and, you know, the Sacramento area was like once you got back? Uh, yeah, man. I mean, it's, listen, we're a couple of weeks away from the election and thing, the, the country's not in a good place. And, um, yeah, I went to Home Depot, which was my first mistake was going to Home Depot to begin with. And then going, going inside because I was in the bubble for two months, I kind of forgot, like, A, I forgot how to move in this space. And then B, I needed to recalibrate and find out like, okay, is the virus any better? Well, not really. Um, so like, what's, what am I allowed to do out here? So I was in Home Depot and, uh, and I, I don't know, short version of the story. I was trying to be nice about it. This couple didn't have a mask on and it was kind of driving me crazy. And, and so I just stayed away from them, but they were in the spot that I needed to be in. Uh, and, and so I waited. So they finally left. I was trying to get some, uh, some washable spray paint for the pickleball court, of course. And so I'm waiting, I'm waiting. Well, then they come around the corner real fast and without the mask on, they basically breathed all over me. And so it kind of ticked me off. And I said, I said, you know, it'd be nice if y'all put the mask on. And the guy went crazy and he was just like yelling at me about how it's, it's not the law. And I was like, well, it is private property and this is their policy. And, and his wife started shouting at me, oh, the, the sheep, they don't want to think for themselves, the sheep. So it was like, it was some culture shock. Yeah. And, 
you know, and so that part is weird. I mean, I've been getting phone calls from friends of mine who were in the bubble. I mean, I, I lived in the dorm life and like when you got out of the dorms, there was a little bit of like, you call your friends, you're like, man, like, how is it for you? Like, we got this apartment. I don't really know how this works. Like you put a down payment down, what do you do? So the people after the bubble, we're all calling each other like, man, are you okay? Like, how are you doing with the, the acclimation? You know, like everybody else has been living differently than you for two months. Uh, you know, and I'm getting used to it. It's thankfully the, the company is, uh, is kind of letting me take some time off and, and get reacclimated. But yeah, it's just a weird time. You know what I mean? It's a very weird time. I'm already thinking a lot about next season and there's a ton of uncertainty about what our jobs are going to look like, you know, where are we going to be? Where am I going to be going? I have no idea. So, I mean, the reacclimation has been tough, you know, trying to get reconnected at home too. I mean, I, again, the job's great and I love it, but it wasn't easy for me to ask my wife and kids to, to, to do it without me for two months. So, you know, that was a big sacrifice on their part. Um, but you just, I guess to put a bow on it, knowing, you know, we talked offline with both of you guys about your own interest in sports media like I'm no as far as long as I've done this, I'm still more than humble enough to know that like I told my wife like I gotta go do this bubble experience because this is how you don't lose your edge, this is how you stay employed, this is how you keep your kind of your viability and your and your relevance in this industry, and you always have to push that envelope because the industry is hard it's hard to get opportunities. Two questions I have left, and uh, then I think Emo fans should off. Is um, you kind of touched upon it. Um, what is your gut feeling of next season? I know we heard Adam Silver say maybe January, maybe March Luther King Day, maybe st start going to bubble, half fans, not half fans. What's your gut feeling? What you feel like the NBA? What are the variables you think the NBA is considering? And then the second part of that question was I just wanted to know how much natural tampering was there? We all know there's teams usually get usually get built on like these team USA teams, you know, it's just like, I call it natural tampering. Cause I don't think the players go out their way to like, let's team up this year, that year. I think it's just naturally become more friends. And when that time comes, they, Oh, we might as well be together. Right. Like kind of like Katie, you kind of seen Kyrie, you know, natural friends. And it's when time to come to connect. So what are right. your two uh, answers on those two questions? Right. Right. So, I mean, Martin Luther King Jr. Day, January 18th is kind of the, the handicap um, as far as like the possible start of the regular season. Now, a lot of people think that, you know, the uh, the inauguration would be, I believe, on the 20th or 21st of January. And there's a lot of folks who say that's a terrible idea. Why You don't want to start the NBA season right before the inauguration. You're just going to get – nobody's going to be paying attention. Um so, you know, maybe it gets pushed back a little bit. But I think mid-January, late January is the target. Um, in terms of what they're looking at, I mean, it's everything from I, – I, I do feel like they're pretty determined to commit to a strategy and to start the season regardless, almost regardless of the state of the virus. And they will just pick their their method, if you will, based on the state of the virus. Meaning I could still see, you know – I'd be very surprised to see fans at all involved in the beginning, but let's just go ahead and say who the heck knows if, if saliva testing had a miraculous kind of advancement here in the, in these stages where the, the idea there is if you could have, you know, five, 6,000 people come in 
and maybe less than that, four or five, let's say 25% capacity in an arena. And all those fans take a saliva test that could tell you instantly whether or not they have the coronavirus, then mm-hmm. you could have a, a building full of negative people. Yeah. And then maybe you could do fans. I just don't see that happening. It's not going to happen in this short order, but that's one idea. So um, the fan component is kind of wait and see, but it's going to be, is it going to be in market games uh, where you are asking players to be careful, setting down rules, but ultimately having to trust players and coaches and executives with how they are moving and then crossing your fingers like baseball and football did that, you know, you don't have outbreaks or, is it going – I still think, and I talked to uh, Michelle Roberts about this, the director of the Players Union, that regional bubbles are still a real possibility. So not any sort of three-month bubble like Orlando where it was just one bubble, but you know, multiple cities where you would maybe stagger the regular season schedule. And let's say like the Pacific Division bubble is going to knock out all of those games between the Kings, Clippers, Lakers, Suns, Warriors, uh, all those teams, and almost go baseball style like a three-game set between these teams, a three-game set, and and spend a month doing that in a regional bubble, knock all those games out, and then those teams are are then green-lighted to to go back home and go reconnect with their families after a month instead of two months, instead of three months, you know, and then another team in that following month would have another bubble somewhere else. That sort of creative approach has been discussed a lot where you could have the benefits of the bubble where everybody is safe, but then not have to sacrifice as much as everybody did for the Orlando experience. And then uh, the natural tampering question, Sam? Oh, yeah. Um, I don't know. I didn't, I, this is not the, <laughs> the juicy answer that you're, you're hoping for, Gary, but like, I just didn't see a lot of it. It's a lot of, I just saw the camaraderie with the guys on the same teams. I mean, you know, Goran Dragic and Jimmy Butler are as thick as, uh, you know, it's kind of thick as thieves, just like LeBron and AD are. Those types of relationships jumped out to me. I'm trying to think of, you know, guys. I mean, Jason Tatum was really friendly with guys on other teams, like Donovan Mitchell. You know, Donovan's True. a good one. I mean, who's True. trying to pry Donovan out of Utah? I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, that's. That's the kind of one where I could see people getting a Donovan there, like, ah, you know, if you come over here. But that, unfortunately, because we were kept apart from them in the hotel, we just didn't see a lot of that stuff. So uh, last question for me, Sam, Sac State, they're starting their basketball season next month. We've heard from the athletic department that daily testing isn't really, you know, feasible for Sac State. What do you think after being in the NBA bubble is the best way for a college like Sac State to really go forward? I, I mean, first of all, I, I don't know that I would be a great expert on that because I don't know. I know the NBA's formula, and I would agree with Sac State officials about daily testing not being viable just financially because, to give you an idea, like the fee for the media was like we paid for our own test um, every single day, and I believe that was in the neighborhood of like $150 a day just for the test. And, you know, it's a lot of cash. And so even if you have access to it, the money is not, it's not a small number. Um, From there, I think it just, the hard part is that you are now talking about, okay, so how strict can the regulations be on the athletes and the coaches and the staff members 
to keep everybody safe. Well, in, not to generalize too much, but you're talking about, I mean, I was, you know, I was at Sac State, I was at age once, like those athletes in those ages, they're, they're not going to be all that reliable when it comes to, you know, all it takes is one person being too reckless, going to too many places, going to a party, hanging with the friends to bring the whole thing down. So I don't know that, I mean, what are you going to threaten everybody with? Because you, when it comes to regulations and, and discipline, it's just there's a threshold where in terms of society, it's just not going to be deemed acceptable or responsible to, to treat these student athletes as if you're in complete control of them. Like that's ethically going to be a problem. In pro sports, you have labor unions, you have representatives, and that's obviously the problem with the NCAA. You have athletes making a lot of money for the institutions, but there's no, you know, there's no labor union for those athletes, for those things to be negotiated and worked through. Like, for example, in the NBA, the players, the NBA is well aware that there was an element of luck involved in them pulling off the bubble. And if nothing else, it's because in the beginning, the players union negotiated that they only wanted players to quarantine for two days. Now, as I told you guys, I had to quarantine seven days. Players only had to quarantine for two days. And now they did some quarantining in market and testing before they came to Orlando. So it was like the combination of the two. But nonetheless, it shows you that like their labor union had a voice. That to me is a real challenge as far as like Sac State Athletics and, and anybody in the NCAA is these conversations are uncomfortable because the athlete voices are going to be all over the map because there's not one organization in the middle trying to bring those voices together. Thank you, Sam Amick. We uh, thank you for everything that you told us about the bubble. We had a great chat and um, obviously we hope you're, uh, you know, taking some time now that you're out the bubble. Obviously, you're going to be expanding the game of pickleball. So we're excited to see where that goes. <laughs> thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Best of luck to both of you. 